Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Script Mistress. I'm really excited to bring you scene three, the villain, writing the good bad guy. I am your host, Amber Bosworth, and I'm so excited to bring you episode three. I can't believe it's already the third episode and you guys are just sticking with me, and that's great. That makes me very happy. I love that October is finally in full swing. I love this month and I just really wanted to focus on the bad guy and also kind of bring a little bit touch of a little bit of the horror genre, uh, which I'll explore a little bit further in the next episode. Really excited. If you want to stay up to date on these podcasts, events and challenges, then get on my emailing list. (laughs) What's taking so long? (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, That's at www.thescriptmistress.com. And I also have this whole episode on video. So if you're watching, then you know. But if you're listening and you want to see the video and get the the episode notes, um, I kind of write out everything here. If you're more of a visual learner, if there's something you really want to look at and um, delve into, I have that all at www.thescriptmistress.com forward slash scene three. And I'll have a download Uh, a freebie for you as well, a free download, which I had in my episode one. I'll just attach it to this one too. I think it'll be really good for you um, as you're working on your own villain, your own bad guy. So again, I read a lot of blogs, articles, books, and I just collect them all and I kind of bring them all together. Um, I don't think like in the world of screenwriting and films and plays that we recycle ideas. And so I bring all the information I know, I kind of pull from a couple different articles, and I bring it to you on this podcast. I provide this um, the link, I have the link in the show notes in that forward slash scene three, if you want to really look at these articles and get more of an idea, like more, um, uh, a, a more in-depth idea as well. But again, I have them all here uh, or on the website um, uh, forward slash scene three, where you can get all the resources as well if you just kind of want to look at it or go to those um, those links, those articles. Um, th- those are really great. And I'll kind of mention them at the end as well. So, and I just want to say, again, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can tell this is not edited. I just get on here and I spill for the weekly topic. Uh, Like most of my listeners that aren't my mother, (laughs) you love to write. I mean, we are writers and I'd rather be writing, but going through all of this for you, I learned so much. Like, and I just know that if, if this is something that helps me, I know it's going to help somebody else. So that's kind of what I get on here and I do, and I speak uh, frankly, and you might see my son come in here as a single mom um, and uh, my daycare closed for the, for today and tomorrow. So he might come in and out of here. I hope not, um, but he might. Uh, so again, it's not edited. I just want to bring this to to you. Um, un, well, it's kind of scripted. <laughs> I have notes, um, but just just for you. So let's get this done and we can go back to writing. And I really apologize. This is kind of be going to be a long one, but it will be very valuable if you are always stuck writing, if you're always stuck getting that compelling villain. If you want help, like, because I'm sorry, your story, like protagonists, yeah, they're one thing, but the villain is so much more fun. Like, I don't know, like as a writer, I love writing the villain because the protagonist almost has to fit into a certain box most of the time. And with villains, you just get to play and and you get to do different things with them. But I have in this, in this podcast, I'll kind of go over like the types of villains, the different types and like you can mix and match. I'm going to pull some from here. I'm going to pull some from there. I'm going to bring it all together. And and then I'll kind of go over a couple of tips to really help make them um, stand out in your script. So that's kind of what we're, we're looking at here. So do you know the difference between all of the types of villains and antagonists in movies? As Roger Ebert said, each film is only as good as its villain. Since the heroes and the gimmicks tend to repeat from film to film, only a great villain can transform a good try into a triumph. And kind of just reiterates what I said earlier. The, I mean, villains just 
so much fun. <laughs> and usually the villain is the one that we remember um, and the one that we we carry with us and make such an impact. Um, villains throughout cinematic history, audience have seen so many come and go. They've booed them, hated them, loved to hate them, and sometimes even rooted for them. I mean, come on. We've all kind of rooted for the bad guy. We could kind of see the villain. We could kind of see where they were coming from. You know, before we get into the logistics of what makes a villain a villain, what drives them? And what types of villains fit best into any given genre or story? We must first define the word and differentiate it from another classic cinematic term. So villain versus antagonist. Most writers will say that they are one and the same. However, at times, nothing could be further from the truth. Villains are defined as evil characters intent on harming others. Antagonists are defined as characters that work in opposition to the protagonist, the hero. So villains aren't always the antagonists. Often, often, I'll say that often, but not always. And antagonists aren't always the villains. And I'll go in into that. For example, Samuel Gerard, you know, Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive, while he is clearly the antagonist by definition, he is in he is in opposition of Richard Kimball's Harrison Ford's character Escape. He is not the villain because there are no evil intentions. He's doing his job not in an evil way, but he is clearly the antagonist, but he is not the villain. So there you have the difference. So there is some gray area to be sure. Villains and antagonists and even protagonists to a degree do not live in a black and white world in the realm of cinematic and literary storytelling. A lesson that most writers can learn from, you know, the best stories often blur the lines between antagonist, villain, and protagonist when, when it really forces the audience to think about these lines and and where the protagonist is coming from and oh my god I understand the villain when you can really make an audience member think about that stuff that's when you're really creating a compelling villain or antagonist so what makes a villain a villain we know that villains often have evil intentions that oppose the protagonist often <laughs> often because that's not always the case how do we define evil Cinema is subjective, so we could argue this point all day, all day. I'm sure you're kind of arguing with me right now or or telling me, yelling at me, telling me what it is. But however, when looking at your characters and stories, you need to put that term in a certain context, depending upon what type of genre that villain is in. Again, the villain and the genre, it can kind of change the dynamics of that villain. So let's look at a film like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> a comedy. Principal Rooney is clearly not evil. However, however, if you look at it from the context of the film, namely from the perspective of the teenagers like Ferris, Sloan, and Cameron, Rooney is evil in terms of representing authority that opposes their will to have fun and enjoy life and school to their fullest. Now, we know we all know how most teenagers feel about authority, especially a principal like Rooney. So in their eyes, at that point in their lives, he's evil, especially since comedies are allowed to present characters in a more satirical or caricatured fashion, which enhances the major elements in villains and antagonists. In the case of Gerard in The Fugitive, Kimball knows that Gerard is just doing his job. So the word evil must be looked upon in a particular context, namely through the eyes of the protagonist. In fact, one of the greatest villains in cinematic history is man. Man is the personification of evil in Disney's Bambi. Now, we all know man, well, in general, at least, is an evil. However, in the eyes of Bambi, Man killed the one Bambi loves for no good reason. 
So it's all in the context. In that context, man was the villain. He was evil. And he killed the person or the um, the entity that Bambi loved the most. So with all of this gray area, how can writers differentiate between types of villains and what makes them do what they do? And how do writers know if a specific kind of villain fits well into the context of their genre or story? Now, while labeling villains is a difficult task, know that these next, these 15 types I go through, they're general villain types in cinema. Just boiled down, I found these in an article. I brought these here. I wanted to go through examples to kind of bring it in the podcast so you can get an idea. You know, models that can be blended into whatever hybrid villain any given story needs. So just a good uh, guideline for you as you write. So number one, the anti-villain. So some examples, uh, Dr. Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, Vincent and Jules in Pop Fiction, Pulp Fiction, sorry, Patrick Bateman, American Psycho. Now, some of these are, um, you know, the anti-villain is pretty straightforward. While their intention may be evil, such characters are present in the type of story that showcases that villain as having characteristics that are appealing or sympathetic to the audience. Anti-villains are often, but not always, again, not always, in the case of Hannibal Lecter, the forefront of the story. One could even say that they are written as the protagonist. So that's interesting. As especially um, the case in Pulp Fiction with Vincent and Jules. They are evil. They have done some evil things. I mean, you could put those characters in an, in other categories that I name below or that I name later, um, like the criminal. But because we learn more about them and learn that what um that they have appealing and sympathetic characteristics because we see much of the story through their perspectives they've now become anti-villains oh the authority figure like principal rooney ferris bueller's day off uh bill lumberg office space uh gunny sergeant hartman uh full metal jacket you know the authority figure is often an example of how evil is defined in terms of context the three characters that I mentioned are perfect examples. The authority figure represents opposition to a character's free will. This type of character excels in a wide variety of genres, but are often more prevalent in comedies and dramas. You know, audiences always identify with opposition to authority and films like were mentioned, it's easy to see that the protagonists look upon these characters as evil, even though, there he is, hold on, a short intermission there, sorry, he is taken care of, uh, so much fun. So where was I? Audience always identify with opposition to authority. In films, like I mentioned, it's easy to see that the protagonists look upon these characters as evil even though in the end, for the most part, they are just doing their jobs. That's not to say that they are doing them right or well, but their, their intentions are to run a school, run an office, create soldiers ready for war, etc. So usually it's their motivations um, that not seen as evil, but in opposition as well. So you could claim those as more as antagonist as well, but still a villain nonetheless in the eyes of the protagonist. The Beast, <laughs> kind of easy to, to get that one. The Alien, an alien. The Shark, in Jaws. The Whale, Moby Dick. The Bear, The Edge. You know, the Beast could just as easily be defined as Mother Nature. Eh, however, we differentiate because the struggle is often very different between the two. The beast has intent, whether it be due to their instincts or through the need to feed. Mother Nature is just ever-present with no intent, and humans and animals alike must survive through it. We just have to bear down. <laughs> we just have to bear down and, and deal with it. But the beast is something that is unleashed, stumbled upon, or stalking with the intent to kill. 
This type of character flourishes in horror and thriller genres. It can also be blended into other villain types, as is the case with the alien and alien. In the context of alien, the alien is a beast rather than just a mere extraterrestrial. Now, the bully. There's one. So, Mr. Potter. It's a Wonderful Life. Johnny Lawrence, The Karate Kid. Biff Tannen, Back to the Future. Uh, Scott Farkas, A Christmas Story. Nurse Ratchet, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Nurse Ratchet, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's ne- Nest. <laughs> and Fletcher from Whiplash. The bully is straightforward opposition to the protagonist often for little to no reason beyond the psychological explanations as to why bullies do what they do, whether it be due to their standing in society, the socks, lack of quality ethics or morals, ace Merrill, or just outright meanness, beef tannin from um, Back to the Future. Given what each of those films tells us, or don't tell us, about the bully, it's simply a character that all audiences can identify with. Either we've been a bully, we've seen a bully, um, we've experienced it, so we can definitely identify with that. Thus, it's a character that is best saved for dramas and comedies. As you'll see with uh, the examples I mentioned, action, thrillers, suspense, and other subgenres like crime thrillers require a bit more from their villains. With the bully, less is needed. They're mean. To be mean with little or no explanation required. Um, it's hard to kind of know. We kind of get in there and I'll mention a little bit later about, you know, what drives our villain. But with the bully, you can still have that element of of humanity within them, but they're mean to be mean. And it's sometimes it's really fun to figure out why, um, especially if it's a drama. The comedy, <laughs> not so much. They just kind of serve a purpose. Uh, the Corrupted. Michael Corleone, The Godfather Trilogy, Regan McNeil, The Exorcist, Noah Cross, Chinatown, Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, Alonzo Harris, Training Day, Jack Torrance, The Shining. So the corrupted are often those that were once good but have fallen. Look no further than Michael Corleone for a perfect example. If they haven't fallen, they are simply characters that are in positions of authority that should be good but aren't. Corrupt cops, corrupt business people, corrupt politicians, etc. We also include supernatural intervention and the likes of like Regan McNeil and Jack Torrance. Their souls are corrupted. This is a very broad category and can apply to stories in almost all genres, namely uh, dramas, thrillers, crime thrillers, horror, action, etc. Kami isn't as represented by the corrupted villain, but there could be a place for them in any context. The criminal. (laughs) Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. Bonnie and Clyde. Tom Powers, the public enemy. Tony um, from Scarface, Frank Lucas, American Gangster, James Conway, Henry Hill, and Tommy DeVito, and Goodfellas. Goodfellas. Sorry. Goodfellas. The criminal is just that. A criminal. They often broadly represent villains that are in it for money and power, and they will all too often do whatever it takes to get it. The criminal is obviously most present in the crime thriller or crime um, crime drama subgenres. However, they play well in action and dramas as well. Characters classified as the criminal can often be considered as the anti-villain as well, as is the case with the wise guys and goodfellas, especially Henry Hill. So you have a lot of um, um, crossing streams there. Uh, number seven, oh, now we're down to number seven. I should have been numbering these, I guess, to you guys. Number seven, The Disturbed, uh, Norman Bates in Psycho, Annie Wilkes in Misery. The Disturbed can be a very broad villain type. The Joker could easily be put into this category by some. However, we're given no real insight into why he is the way he is, hence his classification when I get a little bit further down. Now, we define the disturbed as those with evident psychological problems. Norman Bates and Annie Wilkes are perhaps the perfect examples, both of whom are present in the horror genre. 
The key factor for a villain to fall under the disturbed type is that they showcase some clear inner personality struggles. With both Norman and Annie, we see that they have a gentle and sympathetic side as well. We see qualities that make us sympathize with them. However, unlike the anti-hero type, we clearly do not find ourselves rooting for them by any means. This villain type is best represented by the horror and suspense thriller genres because of the fact that they are disturbed implies that they will clash with the protagonist, often violently and unpredictably. Number eight, the equal, Neil McCauley, Heat, and General Zod, Superman 2, and Man of Steel. The equal is less represented, <laughs> less represented in most genres compared to others. The equal shares the same skills, knowledge, and are savvy of the protagonist, but the ethics between the two are quite different. We know that Zod has the same powers that Superman has. They are equal in that respect. However, they differ in ethics and morals. And for Heat, well, look no further than this iconic scene to showcase how the villain and protagonist are equal. I mean, in fact, this is another perfect example of a gray area. As Macaulay is clear, also clearly an anti-villain. Regardless, let's look at him in the context as the equal. The equal is usually found in superhero action and thriller genres because it's enticing to watch two characters with similar characteristics but different ethics and morals going head to head, which leads to action and thrills most of the time. A nature versus nurture. What would you do if you had the same powers or the same personality traits as somebody else but were raised differently? That's a that's an interesting thing to really um, to delve into. Mm. Number nine, the femme fatale, <clears throat> Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction, Eve Harrington, all about Eve, Suzanne Stone to die for, and Catherine Trammell, Basic Instinct. The femme fatale is one of the most classic villain types, an attractive and seductive woman who will ultimately bring disaster to a man becomes involved with her. Because this villain type will clash with the protagonist. <clears throat> Excuse me. She best fits into the thriller genre. Namely, the subgenres of crime th thrillers, spy thrillers, and film noir. This villain trope can often be utilized in comedies as well. Um, and needless to say, is in almost every James Bond movie, <laughs> The Femme Fatale. The interesting aspect of this villain is that the femme fatale can work both sides of the conflict and can even come out as a protagonist in the end, or not. And yeah, let's not look any further than the end of Basic Instinct, right? <laughs> uh, number 10, The Henchman. Examples, we've got Boba Fett, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, Agent Smith, The Matrix, Mr. Joshua, Lethal Weapon, Clarence Boddicker, Robocop. Now, the henchman is the one that works for either the mastermind or the overall major baddie of the film. They are often the most skilled, the most lethal, and the most ruthless of villains. They exist to do nothing but the bidding of their boss, which usually means that they are in constant conflict with the protagonist, and they're doing all of the dirty work that the mastermind can't or won't do. They prevail in the action and spy thriller genres especially. 11, The Machine, Terminator, The Terminator, Ultron, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Roy Batty, Blade Runner. Now The Machine is one of the most terrifying of villains because they are lifeless. They have no emotion and they can't feel pain or fear. They are cold and calculating. The machine is obviously best represented in the science fiction genre. Uh, Kyle Reese explains the draw of writing such a villain through the, his classic description um, as he goes through his there as well. So it, it's really interesting. It would be so interesting to really get into there's not much you can do um, with the machine, especially if you want to just keep it as just a straight villain. Um, but I'm sure we've all seen machines that have a little bit of, of humanity in them as well, which is always interesting um, to watch on film. Um, the Mastermind, Hans Gruber, Die Hard, 
Arik Goldfinger, Goldfinger, Lex Luthor, Superman, Dr. Evil, Austin Powers Trilogy. The Mastermind is a favorite in the spy thriller genre, especially, namely, in almost every James Bond film, although we often see them appear in action movies as well. This is the brilliant and ruthless character that oversees the whole diabolical plan that is in opposition to the protagonist's plan. However, all too often, they are not the character directly opposing the protagonist, in a physical sense at least. That's what they have the henchmen for. Why should they get their hands dirty? Everything may lead to a final confrontation of sorts, but most of the time the mastermind is just that, the mind, while the henchman works as the muscle. 13. Mother Nature the Twisters and Twister, the Twister, the Storm, the Perfect Storm, the Virus, Outbreak, the Ocean, the Poseidon Adventure, and even the Iceberg and the Ocean in Titanic. I mean, what greater threat than human nature herself? She's unforgiving. She is all-powerful. She is always unstoppable. The protagonist can't stop the Twister, the Storm, the Tsunami, the Ocean, or any of the elements. Sure, they can prevent the Virus. But a majority of the time, the virus prevails, either killing most of the population or making zombies out of all of them. But the elements are impossible to stop. Protagonists can only survive until Mother Nature decides to move past them. This villain type can be found in dramas like The Impossible, but most often are showcased in their own subgenre, the disaster flick. Ugh, those are Always so fun to watch. <laughs> um, the personification of evil. You have Darth Vader, Star Wars. The Emperor, Return of the Jedi. The Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. The Queen in Snow White in The Seven Dwarves. Man in Bambi. Count Dracula, Dracula. The Joker, The Dark Knight. Sauron and The Lord of the Rings. The personification of evil is just that. It's pure evil. The character is offered little to no backstory. Their motives are nothing more than performing evil doings, which obviously oppose the protagonist's journey. While Darth Vader has was given a backstory in Star Wars A New Hope, George Lucas was adamant that the good guys and the bad guys would have no gray area between them. You know, these examples, at least within the context of the films that I mentioned, are full force evildoers through and through. These villains can appear in all genres, but prevail usually in fantasy, you know, especially. Sauron is the ultimate example of the personification of evil. And finally, number 15, the supernatural slant extraterrestrial. Freddy Krueger, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Jason Voorhees, Friday the 13th, any ghosts or demons, you got Poltergeist, the Amityville Horror, Paranormal Activity, etc. Martians, War of the Worlds, and Aliens, and Independence Day. Now, we've combined these because they are often so similar, whether it be hauntings or alien abductions, and often fall in the same vein as faceless foes in horror, science fiction, and suspense thr thrillers. We brought like like to broaden it a bit to include the Martians and aliens because they too are faceless entities that are inhuman. So because they're so different from us. And so this villain type plays equally well in science fiction, while Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees could just as easily be the personification of evil. But in this context, they are supernatural beings that haunt their prey, be it physically or supernaturally. Now, these 15 villain classifications are not meant to state any rules or regulations as far as what villain writers can write and what stories or genres they can be placed in. Consider this like a compass that can lead your development process into what will eventually become the true strength of your script. Beyond that, go through this list, re-listen to it, and see what names are missing. Where would you classify those missing villains that you come up with and why? You can definitely let me know if you want to comment on my Facebook page and let me know. That would be amazing. Of the villains represented in this list, which could you mix and match into other villain types? That's such a good question. Like you take an extraterrestrial or the machine and, and bring it into something um, completely different. 
that's just the great part about the villain is they're they're so broad, a little a lot broader than just sticking with the protagonist. The point is that these 15 villain types allow us to explore the hows and whys of the villains that we are developing for our scripts, at least in the broadest of terms. Now, where the magic truly enters is when we find those gray lines to explore between any of those 15 examples. Because as Roger Ebert said in the beginning, is that all too often the heroes and gimmicks are all too familiar throughout most movies. It's the villains that can transform your script. It's the villains that can make an otherwise routine concept or premise seem fresh and new. I would love to see some writers and just really go to town on amazing villains. So now we've kind of just discussed the different types of villains. Let's focus on some things to create them and shape them in your script to make them more dynamic and more um, believable as well. Uh, We'll look at different examples and tools for creating some believable movie villains. And in writing screenplays that sell, Michael Haug writes that the villain or nemesis is the character who stands in the way of the hero achieving his or her outer motivation. Again, you know, villains are the hero's greatest source of conflict as well. In addition, they play a vital role in developing the story's plot, character arc, and theme. I mean, Usually it's the villain or the opposition that forces your protagonist into his own arc. If you don't have a strong villain, then what is really spurning your protagonist forward on his own journey? That's a huge thing to consider when you're writing. You know, however, writers, you know, often fall into the trap of writing villains as pure evil characters. They're very two-dimensional villains seem underdeveloped due to absent values They may also lack internal conflict or desires. In turn, this causes the story to become flat and predictable. So pretty much like all of the ones we talked about, except for the machine and Mother Nature, there's usually a driving force behind it. When you can discover that, even if it's not something that you reveal completely within your script, that's something that you can carry with you as you're writing because that will help um, motivate your villain forward. And it's something that if it is revealed later, that audiences can really appreciate and understand. So what makes a good movie villain? Why are characters such as the Joker from the Dark Knight and Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards so enjoyable to watch? I mean, they're, they're fun to watch because they feel real. They're believable. So uh, we're going to take a look at the four key elements for developing believable movie villains. So element number one, create a humanized movie villain. Humanize them. This doesn't mean writing villains as humans. You know, on the contrary, a compelling villain has qualities which make him or her feel human. Regardless of genre, good movie villains often possess like an internal conflict, weakness, and flaws. These qualities cause villains to act immorally and unjustly. However, believable villains never see their actions or as immoral or unjust. It isn't until the end of the film when their views about themselves or the world changes. In other words, they may be faced with a revelation near the end of the film, which changes their views. Often a believable movie villain's qualities are due to unjust treatments or internal conflict from their past. As a writer, you might also use symbols or flashbacks to show these struggles. For example, in Thor, Loki is the story's main villain in Thor. He is the adopted son of King Odin and Thor's brother. He also possesses admiring traits such as compassion towards Thor. However, tension soon grows when he realizes he was adopted by King Odin from the Frost Giants. That's his internal struggle. He views his his adoption as nothing more than a tool, a pawn to build a friendly alliance between the two forces, not love. Consequently, the audience learns about Loki's villainous nature. This can be seen in two ways. In his dialogue with King Odin when he confronts him about his past, and in his action when he takes over the throne of Asgard. He's not evil for no reason. 
Rather, his immoral actions stem from a feeling of inferiority, weakness. It's a weakness. He feels that he can neither be as great as Thor is, nor a worthy son to his father. Inevitably, Loki's internal struggle also become his fatal flaw. He desires to be superior to Thor and pursues taking control of Asgard for himself. In the end, Loki realizes he can never be the son that Thor is. His father rejects him and Loki allows himself to fall from the Bifrost Bridge. Loki's actions connect back to this internal struggle again and again throughout this Marvel series. And Loki is such a compelling villain, why he has a show, why he's been in so many movies, and not just to say that Tom Hiddleston is an amazing actor, of which he is, but he had such a great character to draw from, and so many internal struggles that we we see as this continues. And this is something that drives him forward through the rest of the films um, that he carries with him, and that's just about you know creating compelling compelling villains. Another example of a movie villain who feels human is Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Like Loki, Gollum is not pure evil either. He's an interesting and believable villain because of his internal conflict. More specifically, he possesses a poisonous thirst for power. Greed takes over his entire being. And in the opening of Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, we see his greed overwhelm him in the movie's prologue. A once loving and friendly Schmeagol thus turns into crippled old Gollum. Gollum now faces an internal struggle throughout the story. He fights between the friends to either be Frodo's friend, the need to either be Frodo's friend, or embrace the greedy nature of his split personality. So here are some tips for humanizing villains. Notice how many of the fantasy and science fiction movie examples still are able to make their villains feel human, even though it's fantasy and science fiction, even if they don't exist in the real world. When developing your movie villain, include a weakness within your villain that causes him or her to act immorally. Include an internal need for your villain to accomplish as the story arc develops. In the final battle, allow your villain to face his or her weakness when confronting your hero. Those are some tips for humanizing your villains. So move on to element two. Believable movie villains have values. You know, they do. They have values. A character that is fully developed never acts or speaks randomly. His or her dialogue and actions are based on values and beliefs. Believable movie villains also act in relation to their own system of values. Additionally, the the villain's values are always in conflict with the hero's values. There might be an epic battle scene or a heated debate taking place inside of a courtroom drama. But more than anything, it's the villain's system of beliefs that are in conflict with the hero. It's what makes the battle between the hero and the villain so gripping. So let's take a look at the Joker in the Dark Knight. The Joker sees himself as an agent of chaos. At first glance, this may seem to be surface level, evil notion, but the Joker informs Batman of his values, which are the reason why he seems crazy. In the interrogation, Joker's moral argument with Batman is that he's ahead of the curve. Their morals, their code. It's a bad joke dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. You'll see. I'll show you. When the chips are down, these uh, civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. Yeah, I know that was a terrible Joker impression. I do claim that I am an actor, but I cannot do that. (laughs) But that is the quote from the movie. In other words, it's not an accident that the Joker values chaos. Rather, the Joker commits to proving that the people are just as crazy as he is when the world allows it. As mentioned, no believable villain acts for no reason. Nor does a realistic villain ever see himself as a bad guy. In fact, the Joker makes this clear in dialogue early on in the movie. When he's told that he's crazy, Joker emphatically responds, I'm not. No, I'm not. If we don't deal with this now, soon, little uh, Gamble here won't be able to get a nickel for his grandma. 
I promise when I get a little bit more tax, uh, tech sa- savvy, I might just kind of stick a blurb in there, stick a quote. <laughs> You'll actually get to hear it and not my pit- pitiful attempts at trying to do that. So similarly, Hans Linda uh, also follows his own set of values. Hans, that was that's a typo, values and inglorious bastards. World War II movies tend to show Nazis as cartoonish, evil characters. However, using this notion only deflates the character and the overall story. Instead, Quentin Tarantino writes values for the movie's villains uh, for the movie's villain to follow. Hans thus sees himself as a detective. Like uh, any spy investigator, it's his job to capture anyone that's a criminal. He does this with strict integrity as he sees it. The first major scene of the movie masterfully introduces the audience to his belief beliefs. Known as the Jew hunter, hunter, Hans embraces his nickname because it's his job to capture runaway Jews. Later in the movie, he affirms his Rolda Aldo. So you're the Jew hunter, a detective, a damn good detective. Finding people is my specialty. So naturally, I work for the Nazis. <laughs> Again, a very bad impression. I'm sorry. Hans doesn't see himself as a a despicable character, though the audience definitely will and should. He views his roles as a necessity. However, all that changes when he shows a willingness to surrender. He offers a proposition to allow the Allies to win the war. Except he'll only agree to the death of Hitler if he's not forced to stand trial before a tribunal. Here, Hans shows what his values were have changed, uh, that his values have changed. This change in values also creates an interesting character arc for him with a new plot twist. Hans proves himself even more of a villain by showing his only real values are about protecting himself. So some tips for instilling values. Used properly, values and beliefs can enrich these villains to make their immoral actions feel justified, at least to them. They can also be a great tool for showing a villain's character arc. Show your villain's values through dialogue or action in his or her introduction scene. And again, I submit or I provided you with the character introduction um, fillable PDF um, at www.thescriptmistress.com forward slash scene three. And there you can really use that to work on all of these. Uh, tips for your villain, especially if you're currently working on something that you're having a difficult time creating a very good villain. This is a perfect thing for you. And the final battle, show the villain either fully committing or altering his system of beliefs. Uh, The choice taken may determine whether your villain survives, dies, or changes. All right. Element number three, flawed sense of justice. A good movie villain's actions are guided also by a sense of justice. In other words, the villain pursues his or her goal based on an internal purpose or internal motivation. Though misguided, his or her sense of justice is never entirely wrong, nor is it entirely right. Take a look at The Dark Knight again. Only this time, let's focus on Harvey Dent. With the Joker as the movie's main villain, it's easy to forget Harvey Dent's, aka Two-Face's, compelling arc into one of Batman's greatest villains. Out of no direct fault of his own, Dent loses his love interest, Rachel, when she's killed in an explosion. Consequently, the Joker manipulates Dent into blaming Gotham's corrupt police force for her death, along with Batman. Harvey Dent's new false sense of justice becomes vengeance. His internal motivation is based on violent. Oh, Siri. <laughs> His internal motivation is based on violently avenging Rachel's death by returning the favor to all those who are responsible. Now, Christopher Nolan uses Harvey Dent's coin as one of many symbols to resemble to represent his internal motivation. We see Harvey Dent flip the coin to decide people's fates in the later half of the film. He gives each a 50-50 chance to to live. The same chance that Rachel had when Gordon and Batman failed to save her from her death. 
Now, tips for establishing a flawed sense of justice. Now, these examples leave writers with templates for establishing internal motivation or a flawed sense of justice. Here's how you can use them in writing your script. Begin by developing your villain's outer goal, like what is very apparent. Ask, why does the character desire this goal more than anything else? Like for Harvey, he desires vengeance against Batman. Reveal your villain's flawed sense of justice through dialogue. It's a movie. Dialogue. Be careful. Don't overwhelm the audience with constant preaching of one's internal motivation. Rather, embed the discussion of internal motivation at the climax of an intense moral argument. And following these steps, your movie theme also becomes clearer. Here's an example of Harvey Dent arguing his sense of justice to Batman and Gordon. This takes place at the most climatic, climac, climactic moment of the movie. So Batman, you don't want to hurt the boy, Harvey. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair. You thought we could be decent men in an indecent time, but you were wrong. The world is cruel, and the only morality is a cruel world. Pulls out his coin. It's chance. Unbiased, unprejudiced, fair. His sons got the same chance she had. 50-50. Two-Face simultaneously combines his dialogue with his internal motivation with his action. He gives each character in the scene a 50-50 chance to live, just like Rachel. Use similar, similar combinations of dialogue and action in your script. That'd be so good. <laughs> All right, the last element, element four, mirroring goals. A believable movie villain also has an outward goal that mirrors or is similar to the protagonist's goal. This allows the villain to organically compete with the hero, except the villain's path towards that goal presents a different twist. Unlike the hero, the villain's own values guide his actions towards his or her goal. Not only is conflict inevitably promised, but also a compelling clash of ideals takes shape in every battle. Let's look at another Marvel example, Avengers Infinity War. The Avengers goal in Infinity War is to save the universe by stopping the movie's main villain, Thanos. The Avengers agree to destroy the Time Stone, Meanwhile, they also fight back against Thanos' followers. Similarly, Thanos' goal mirrors the Avengers' goal. He, too, wants to save the universe. But his values and beliefs present a twist to his path. Thanos believes the universe is threatened by overpopulation. So for Thanos, saving the universe means ending half of all life. The aligned goals bring about compelling battle scenes. Most importantly, the conflict enhances in meaningful ways given the villain shares the same goals of the heroes. But the twist in Thanos' path presents a moral dilemma on both sides. Thanos supports his goal with his own flawed sense of justice or internal motivation, as I mentioned um, before. That is, he finds a sense of purpose for saving the universe from overpopulation by killing half of its population. It's up to the Avengers then to stop him at all costs. Mirroring goals exist in another example too, Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is the movie's hero. He seeks to save the universe from the Galactic Empire, led by Darth Vader. As the movie's main villain, Darth Vader attempts to destroy the Rebel Alliance. Both Luke and Darth Vader's goals vary. Nonetheless, they each are connected connected in their desire to maintain control of the galaxy. Eventually, both their goals deviate. Luke seeks to save Darth Vader when he learns that he is his own father. Similarly, Darth Vader attempts to turn Luke over to the dark side in a father-son alliance. Once again, alliance becomes the mirroring, uh, mirroring goal between both Luke and Darth Vader. Ironically, the same is true for Kylo Ren and Rey, which manifests in The Rise of Skywalker. The mirroring of goals helps to keep the villain villains real and believable. 
After all, their goals are the same of the heroes. The difference for the villain is that his or her goals are guided by different values and internal struggles. So here's some tips for um, mirroring goals. Again, by having your villain and hero compete for a similar goal. Alter, alter your villain's path toward the goal based on his or her beliefs. An example, Thanos wants to save the universe just like the Avengers, but he does it out of the belief that the universe is threatened by overpopulation. Above all, believable movie villains are more than just evil characters. They are human with their own internal struggles, flaws, and values. Often they desire the same goals as the hero of the story. However, how they seek to achieve such goals is often to what makes them a villain. The ruthless pursuit of their goals at the expense and ignorance of others can turn them into an enemy that needs to be defeated. By making your movie villain as well-developed as your protagonist, you set up the potential for compelling conflict. Moreover, a villain the audience recognizes in themselves or others can be the most terrifying one of all. I know, like, even just Thanos, I mean, I think a lot of us can really relate um, to the the troubles that we have and what would happen if we lost 50% of the entire population. Who knows? So I borrowed these, um, borrowing these from articles from Industrial Scripts and ScreenCraft, both of them. Um, and again, I have both of these links on the in my script note, in my script notes, in the episode notes on the webpage, the forward slash scene three. And please go there, grab the free character introduction PDF and focus on creating some of these villains, um, mi mixing and matching and using the tips, those four elements that I discussed. Again, you can download it right off the website at the www.thescriptmistress.com forward slash scene three. Now, the action item, your writing action for this week. Look at your last script. Look at the last script you wrote and find your villain. Is it a true villain or is it just an antagonist? If it's your villain, what type do they or it or it fit into? Which 15 types that you can do? Are they a mix of a couple? Now go to the Facebook page and tell us about your villain. What type are they? And what traits do they have that we can really relate to? What makes them relatable? What's their internal flaw? Um, what Are they mirroring goals? Go to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash ink to screen. That is my ink to screen um, challenge, but still, I'm there. Or thescriptmistress.com. You can always email it to me. The next... As we're talking, the next Ink to Screen screenwriting challenge is now open for registration for October. Winners from the September challenge will be announced on October 17th. All feedback will go out to all the writers that participated by the 17th that night or really early on the 18th so they can prepare you for the challenge, which starts bright and early, well, at midnight, 12.01 midnight on the 19th. October is going to be so much fun. Like maybe this is a great time to really flesh out your villain and see what you can do with it. We'll see. Uh, you can check it all out at www.thescriptmistress.com forward slash ink to screen. The number two in there, ink to screen. Thank you so much for listening and or watching. If you're watching, so you got to watch that. I truly value any feedback. If you have an idea for a podcast that might help, you can always email me, always available, Amber at thescriptmistress.com. Like and follow the show wherever you are listening. Talk soon. And until then, happy writing. <laughs>